Hello and welcome to the Clarkson Ignite podcast for another episode of Around the Campus. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Tyler. And today we're joined by Dr. Krishnan of the Chemical Engineering Department. Yeah, so it was really interesting to hear um, you know, his unique perspective on chemical engineering, uh, which is a field that is you know, often, often forgot about and not really uh, discussed or kind of goes in the background. What do you think about it, Jonathan? Yeah, absolutely. It was a fascinating field to hear about. We got to learn about new green energy techniques with uh, fuel cells and advanced materials and their production and just methods. And personally, as a chemical engineer, I found it a very fascinating topic in general to listen to, as well as a fantastic podcast overall. So I hope you all enjoy it, and let's get into it. Welcoming on to the Ignite podcast this week, Dr. Christian. So glad you could join us. How are you? Thank you, Tyler. I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Thank you. Um, So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a professor in the chemical engineering department at Clarkson, and I joined Clarkson in 2007, and uh, I do research in material science and engineering related topics. Very interesting. And kind of what, was there a particular moment in your career um, where, you know, you got interested in chemical engineering? Like, what ignited that passion for you? I was very interested in chemistry in high school, and I liked organic chemistry also quite a bit, predicting the action mechanisms. So all of that um, triggered me towards chemistry as such. And then in my college days, I was interested in mechanics. And if I chose the path of mechanical engineering, I thought I would have to let go of chemistry. So I decided to stick to chemical engineering. Sure, yeah. Wise choice, in my opinion. Wise choice. (laughs) Um, uh, So we know you've done a lot of research on a bunch of very impressive and different things. Um, I guess what would be a good way to start was uh, with uh, desalinization, if I'm saying that correctly, which I hope I am. Um, Can you tell us a little bit of why uh, desalinization is so important in our world today? So not in upstate New York, where we have a lot of rivers, but there are many parts of the world where water is a scarcity, it's a scarce commodity. Desalination is, uh, is of uh, great emphasis in these regions. So uh, it's the removal of salt and uh, other inorganic compounds from water mm-hmm. to make uh, water portable, drinkable. So there are many techniques, thermal desalination being the simplest, where you just boil off the water uh, and condense the water vapor to get distilled water. Mm-hmm. But that is associated with a high capital cost because you need um, materials that can withstand the high temperatures of uh, 100 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. There are other techniques like the reverse osmosis that are currently being used. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, that's the water that we get in water bottles that we purchase from Walmart, say. Yeah. So uh, we are interested in energy-efficient ways of desalinating water. That's not based on distillation, per se. Yes. So you can use sunlight in two different ways. Sunlight contains energy in the form of heat, it also contains energy in the form of uh, light photons. Absolutely. So we are converting the energy in the photons of la- sunlight to electrical current and using that to desalinate water. Would you say that is the main challenge of uh, the energy cost of desalinization being the most difficult challenge to overcome before it is widespread? Correct. So, so if you used um, conventional desalination techniques like dialysis, the voltage requirements are quite high. 
and the voltage that you can generate from a typical solar cell would be 0.5 volts. So you'd have to have several of these solar cells connected in series to reach the high voltages required using the conventional routes. Our recent work is using this uh, low voltage generated by a single solar cell, and we were able to desalinate what is called brackish water, so that's not as salty as seawater, but it contains salt that needs to be removed before it becomes drinkable. Absolutely. That's, that's very, very important use. I know water is scarce in many places, and we're blessed that currently we do not have that issue here in upstate New York, but it is definitely prevalent throughout the world in many places. Um, do you think this technology will become viable for widespread use in the future, or do you see it staying limited? There are some material challenges that need to be overcome, and that's the focus of our research. So uh, our concept is based on the dye-sensitized solar cell. Mm -hmm. So it's how plants use chlorophyll to capture light mm -hmm. and they convert that to food. So the uh, approach is similar. So instead of using silicon, uh, which is currently used in solar cells, mm -hmm. we use titanium dioxide, the white pigment in paint, mm -hmm. as our semiconductor. So silicon is a semiconductor. It has a band gap um, energy. That, that's the energy difference between the HOMO and LUMO energy levels, if you are familiar with that concept. Yeah. That's about 1.12 electron volts. Mm -hmm. um, in titanium dioxide, it's 3.2 electron volts, which means you need the photons to have higher energy to move the electrons from the valence band to the conduction band mm -hmm. and generate current. Absolutely. So... Uh, higher energy implies that titanium dioxide can absorb only the UV region of light, the mm -hmm. electromagnetic spectrum. Um, silicon, on the other hand, because of its low band gap, can absorb uh, a wider range of the electromagnetic spectrum. That's why we use it so widely. Mm -hmm. um, silicon fabrication is expensive. Titanium yes. dioxide is much cheaper to make, so we prefer that approach. So how do you make uh, titanium dioxide absorb visible light? Um, and that's where the dye sensitization comes into play. Mm -hmm. And it's important that the solar cell can absorb in the visible region because the energy content in the ultraviolet region is very small. Yes. So only about 4% of the sunlight's energy is in the ultraviolet region. The atmosphere blocks most of it, if I remember correctly. And about 40 plus, 43% is mm -hmm. in the visible region, 400 to 700 nanometer uh, wavelength range. And uh, titanium dioxide cannot do that. So we add um, a pigment that can absorb light in this region of 400 to 700 and transfer the absorbed energy to titanium dioxide. Mm -hmm. Now titanium dioxide uses this energy to knock off the electron and create current. Amazing. Very, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, this, is, so this concept is 31 years old. So um, 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 Brian Oregon and Michael Gratzel um, reported this in 1991. Our novelty is integrating this um, in a device that can do solar desalination by something called the redox flow process. Mm -hmm. It's a continuous production of seawater as opposed to a batch process. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes sure that you have a constant flow of in and out instead of having to sit and uh, take a set batch or a set limit of a container. It's like uh, having a pipeline instead of having to sit and make like one pot of a thing and then do it one at a time, Correct. which is uh, yeah. important mm -hmm. for upscaling. Yeah. So we find that the low voltages generated are sufficient to do that mm -hmm. and to produce water at a high, relatively high flow rate. Do you think that that will be able to move to seawater eventually? 
Um, so that could be challenging. We haven't looked into that yet. All of the grad cell cell in 1991 and all of the work until now, uh, the, much of the focus has been on non-equous electrolytes. Mm -hmm. So they would use an electrolyte like ethylene carbonate. Mm -hmm. It's the electrolyte that's there in our lithium-ion batteries as well. Yeah. And acetonitrile, mm -hmm. um, which is in fact uh, toxic and quite volatile. Absolutely. Dyson stress solar cells have shown high efficiencies and high voltages using um, electrolytes based on these non-equous solvents. For desalination purposes, we should clearly avoid toxic solvents like acetonitrile. Mm -hmm. And we would like to shift to uh, an aqueous medium. So if you have an electrolyte that can um, that is totally water-based yes. without any organic solvents, that's what our goal was. And the challenges there are that the dye that was so stable in an organic electrolyte system would start desorbing off from the electrode surface. Yeah. So coming up with um, better dyes that are more stable in aqueous systems. More waterproof, is, essentially. Correct, mm -hmm. yeah. So it yeah. stays on the electrode and not get leached out. Absolutely. So um, that's a big challenge, and if that can be overcome, um, this is uh, it seems like a viable process to me. Yeah. And even in the 91 paper, they've shown that the system um, is quite stable in the organic electrolyte. So it continues operation over two months under sunlight. Mm -hmm. So five million turnovers of the redox of the, of the dye Mm -hmm. it's, it has shown stability. Yeah. 30 years of development after that. So mm -hmm. the system has been refined quite a bit, and, and stability has improved greatly. That's amazing. Um, you mentioned that a lot of these solar cells for the higher voltage systems are having to rely on organic solvents or toxic materials. Um, and while solar cells are a step for green energy and for better, cleaner systems, um, a lot of the chemical fallout from the making of that is a potential hazard. Um, do you see that being shifted away from to more of the more innocuous things like the titanium oxide like you were mentioning, or do you think it will stay with the more robust, if toxic, uh, chemicals? Coming up with safer electrolytes is a very important thing, not just in solar cells, but also in lithium-ion batteries. We have heard of batteries catch fire. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's because they use... Volatile electrolytes, mm -hmm. something called dendrite. Mm -hmm. It's a problem with lithium-ion batteries. It can short the cell internally and generate a lot of uh, uh, resistive heat. Isn't that it? Heat, heat can vaporize the solvent mm -hmm. and make the solvent catch fire. So a uh, research area in my group for several years now has been to come up with safer electrolytes, ionic liquid-based electrolytes mm -hmm. that are essentially non-volatile. Liquids, by definition, would be thought to be volatile. Everything, liquids have vapor pressure. Yes. But ionic liquids, because these are ionic systems, there's very strong electrostatic interaction mm -hmm. that holds the uh, material in the condensed phase. So yes. Very low vapor pressures. And because they're ionic, they're polar, they can conduct ions. Yes, that's, that's very important. Mm -hmm. And that kind of moves us into a bit of uh, another aspect of your research. I know you've conducted quite a bit on fuel cells, which are a type of energy storage medium. They're not exactly batteries, but they're, you could be thought, think of them as very advanced and energy storage mediums. Um, so, sorry, do you? Yeah, so, so I would think of uh, fuel cells as energy-producing things, mm -hmm. and lithium-ion batteries store energy, fuel cells produce energy. Yeah. So they are like solar cells. All right. So yeah. instead of using sunlight, we would use um, uh, a really nice fuel like hydrogen, mm -hmm. which um, burns, essentially burns electrochemically mm -hmm. to generate energy electrical energy in the case of fuel cells, and uh, water is the byproduct, 
which makes fuel cell very attractive and green. Yes. The internal combustion engines that we have right now produce carbon dioxide, mm-hmm. and they're not that efficient. Mm-hmm. And Carnot cycle, if you remember, so they, are, they have limited efficiency. Yes. Whereas electric chemical processes are uh, quite efficient, much higher efficiencies compared to thermal systems. Very true. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know you worked on a fuel cell with a proton exchange membrane, or PME. How is that different than other more traditional fuel cells? My research related to proton exchange membrane fuel cells has been uh, in two different areas, both related to water management. So, so I said that you burn hydrogen and uh, generate water as the product. Mm-hmm. So what happens to the water in the system? So think, think of continuous operation, right? So if you want to maintain a steady state, the water has to be removed continuously mm-hmm. uh, at the rate at which it's produced in the cell. Absolutely. And if it's not removed, then it results in what is called the flooding of the fuel cell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the water enters the channels that are meant for the supply of hydrogen, which is the fuel, and oxygen, which is the oxidant. So it blocks off these pathways, and the fuel cell shuts down because no energy, electrical energy is produced. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Mm-hmm. Water management yes. is a big deal. Yep. You shouldn't right. allow the fuel cell to dry up completely as well mm-hmm. because proton exchange membrane is a polymer that can conduct protons. That's why it's called proton exchange membrane. Absolutely. It's essentially Teflon, mm-hmm. uh, but sulfonated Teflon. Okay. The material is called Nafion. Mm-hmm. And when you think about Teflon, the first thing that comes to our mind is water repellency. It does not like water. It's hydrophobic. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But Nafion, on the other hand, contains... Um, polar channels mm-hmm. that can conduct water. Yes. And that water carries the protons too. So the electrical conductivity of nephion is highly dependent on the water content. Mm-hmm. So if the nephion membrane gets dried out, it stops conducting proton. So and the fuel cell yeah. shuts down. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you do not want too much of water because it will flood the gas flow channels. And you do not want too little of water because it would um, stop the proton conductivity of nephion. So maintaining this delicate balance has been a challenge. The research was coming up with a membrane that would conduct protons without having to rely on water. Mm-hmm. So we again uh, sought to replace the water with ionic liquids, protic ionic liquids, ionic mm-hmm. liquids that can conduct uh, protons. Absolutely. So that was uh, our first approach uh, for water management. So if mm-hmm. you come up with a membrane that conducts proton, uh, a membrane that's imbibed with the protic ionic liquids, mm-hmm. Now, the membrane conductivity is not so much reliant, uh, reli- dependent on the humidity of the system. Absolutely. And a proto-ionic uh, membrane, if you want to break that down for people who aren't uh, chemical engineers, yeah. uh, would you give a brief description of what that is? Yeah. So if you take sodium chloride and heat it to a high temperature, you get liquid sodium chloride. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need a high temperature for these inorganic salts to melt them. But um, ionic liquids are organic molecules mm-hmm. that... Uh, are ionic in nature. They are like salts. They contain a cation and an anion, uh, but they are molten at room temperature. That means they have melting points that are below room temperature. Yep. So they have the characteristics of salts, meaning high thermal stability, and they also conduct ions. Very cool. The protic ionic liquids contain H plus ion. Protons. The, the protons. So what kind of role does uh, this research in fuel cells play in terms of uh, green energy, in terms of you know, replacing the traditional batteries that we have today and things like that? Yep. Fuel cells would replace the, the internal combustion engines at, at some point uh, as soon as we are ready to handle hydrogen. Hydrogen is a very flammable gas. 
So carrying a pressurized tank of hydrogen in our automobiles, how safe do we feel R- about right, that? Right, right. Once we come up with safer methods of storing and releasing hydrogen, it would become widespread. You know of cars running on lithium-ion batteries. Yeah? Yep. Battery is an energy storage device. So you have to charge and discharge. Yeah, so once the battery is, uh, is drained out, you connect it to an electrical supply and charge it. Yep. Then run the car for a while, it gets discharged, you charge it again by plugging it in. There's no plugging in involved for fuel cells. Fuel cells are like our current cars. You have a tank that stores hydrogen. You do not connect it to an electrical outlet. You just refill your hydrogen tank every time right. the tank gets empty, just like we fill our cars with gasoline. So this is a this is a different approach then to a typical electric car that that has a battery. Correct. Okay. So we are producing energy out of fuel in a fuel cell, and uh, batteries, on the other hand, are energy storage devices. But you have to have an electric power somehow made, and then you store that in the battery and use that energy. That's the battery approach. Mm-hmm. Fuel cells, they're like internal combustion engines. They burn fuel and make energy. So it's essentially an electrochemical power source that would then power an electric motor. Correct. The second aspect of my research-related fuel cell is in something called the bipolar plate. Mm-hmm. The power produced in one fuel cell is not enough to run a car, just as the energy produced in one solar cell may not be enough to run a device. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so you have to connect several of these fuel cells in series mm-hmm. to build up the voltage. And to connect these cells in series, you need the bipolar plates. Bipolar plate has to be electrically conductive. Mm-hmm. It should have low resistance. The channels for passing the hydrogen and oxygen gases are machined mm-hmm. into these bipolar plates. Metals are a popular choice because metals are conductive. Absolutely. And you can easily stamp channels Like on a metals. big metal stamp like you would make any other yeah. part. problem with metals, they're heavy. And so in contrast, graphite... Mm-hmm. Um, it does not have conductivity as high as metals do, but they're much lighter. So metal density would be 8, carbon is about 2. Absolutely. Okay. So we focused on graphite bipolar plates. Now, how do you make use of this bipolar plate for water management? That was the part we were interested in. Mm-hmm. So we made these bipolar plates porous. So the graphite, graphitic bipolar plate would act as a sponge. It would soak up the water that's generated mm-hmm. by capillary action. Mm-hmm and then drain out the water from the fuel cell. Absolutely. Now, um, the challenge was to have the right pore size. So, so think about this. Right? So anything that's porous to water mm-hmm. would obviously be porous to gases as well. Yes. Yep. So how do you make the channels impervious to the hydrogen fuel? You don't want hydrogen gas leaking out of the fuel cell through these pores. Absolutely. So remember, right, the, uh, right. the channels contain hydrogen gas. The, the, the you have to make it selective to only let the water. So making it... Um, impervious to gas but uh, permeable to water mm-hmm. is counterintuitive. We designed the pore size to be uh, just right so mm-hmm. that capillarity blocks the gas but allows water to drain through. That is very impressive to be able to just take water out of a, a uh, system and while leaving gas. Yeah. And also making the pores hydrophilic mm-hmm. so that they can wick water. Very cool. And um, you've mentioned several times that uh, you were using graphite. If I remember uh, correctly, that's just a thin layer of graphene. Graphite contains several layers of graphene stacked together. And I believe you'd had some work with uh, elastomers in this field of graphene Mm -hmm. as well. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about that? So we do use graphene for dual conducting material that can conduct both electrons and ions. Mm -hmm. 
But let's talk about graphite reinforced rubbers now. So this was right after the BP oil leak. Very famous, um, yeah, infamous. So uh, having um, rubber seals that are more thermally resistant and mm-hmm. resistant to oil swelling is of great interest for oil and gas applications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you need the rubber seal to be able to withstand the high pressures and high temperatures. Temperatures can be 200 degrees Celsius. Yes. The rubber seal must have resistance to oil swelling. It must also be chemically resistant to hydrogen sulfide. Yes. Which is a corrosive gas that mm-hmm. can attack rubber and degrade it. We looked at two things. One is hydrogen sulfide permeability. Mm-hmm. We avoided that using fluoropolymers. Improving the strength is through the addition of fillers, and graphite is one such filler. Mm-hmm. And carbon black was commonly used in uh, what are called blowout preventers. We compared the properties of a carbon black filled blowout preventer mm-hmm. with clay and graphite type of fillers. Mm-hmm. We looked at the filler aspect ratios, either nanoparticles. Mm-hmm. Nanoparticles can be spherical, they can be wire-like, they can be flat. Absolutely. So we studied all three types, and mm-hmm. we found that flat fillers, two-dimensional fillers, like clay and graphite, mm-hmm. have some very interesting uh, enhancement and fracture properties. Mm-hmm. The tear strength that you would get by putting a flat two-dimensional clay particle mm-hmm. was six times higher than carbon black. That, that's a very significant increase. At the same loading. So 45 parts per 100 parts of rubber is a loading of carbon black and the clay. Mm-hmm. And we got about six times enhancement. That, that's wow. a massive increase. Yeah. Yeah. And with graphite, we got about a factor of two improvement. Because of the flat shape of the fillers, mm-hmm. when a crack is propagating, it gets obstructed yes. by the lateral surface of the filler. And the it's crack does a, not It's uh, acting like advance. a shield against the crack. Correct. The crack does not advance, and that improves the strength. Absolutely. Um, do you see other applications for materials um, like this with the filler and the 2D properties that could be used outside of the petroleum industry? Yes, in a lot of different areas. All, all engineering applications that require seals. Mm-hmm. Very large field, then. Yeah. Um, um, I see you've also had a bit of work on uh, fluorinated surfaces for um, antibiotical uh, treatment of things that, well, don't need anything growing on them. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yes. PFAS or perfluoroalkyl substances have a bad rap now as environmental pollutants. But we used semi-fluorinated polymers to tackle an important environmental problem, the problem of barnacle adhesion to ship hulls and how it was being avoided in the past. Yes. Tributyl tin was a toxic compound that would leach out of the coatings. Yes. And the barnacles would ingest them and die. So that's a very bad way of handling marine biofouling. So we wanted to come up with uh, something that's non-toxic mm-hmm. that will um, minimize barnacle adhesion. Absolutely. So if you make the um, ship hull non-adhesive, mm-hmm. so nothing would be able to stick on it. And fluoropolymers, they're non-stick by nature. So that was the area where I worked on. Mm-hmm. So we made fluorinated materials, coatings, that would adhere to the ship hull, mm-hmm. adhere to steel, but not allow barnacles to adhere to them. Fluorinated groups have this natural tendency of blooming to the surface mm-hmm. because of the low surface energy of fluoroalkanes. And we found that they were quite um, resistant to fouling by algae. Absolutely. Um, do you see any application of this uh, type of technology moving into biomedical devices and implants? Because um, those need a lot of non-stick properties as well to keep the body or platelets from sticking to it. Anywhere you need a non-stick surface, fluoropolymers would find an application there. They're a really interesting class of materials. Fluorine is the most electronegative element in the periodic table. And 
carbon-fluorine bond would have a very strong ionic character to it mm-hmm. because of the electronegativity difference between carbon and fluorine. Yes. So you would think of uh, CF bond to be highly polar, so mm-hmm. it should like water because water is polar. Like dissolves like. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. not how Teflon is. Teflon is water repellent. It's highly non-polar. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is the um, because of the large size of fluorine, mm-hmm. the rotation about carbon-carbon bond is hindered. Yes. And because there's not too much rotation, the dipole moments get canceled out, making these molecules essentially non-polar. That's why they are among the lowest surface energy materials that we know of. They have uh, surface energies of about 6 millijoules per meter squared. So to me, as, as someone without necessarily a, a chemistry background, technically, um, this, this has been really fascinating to listen to. And chemical engineering is so interesting because it's so broad and has so many applications, and yet you can get really, really deep with each individual uh, topic. So I was just wondering kind of, you know, how can someone with maybe not a, a more technical chemistry background uh, learn more about these topics? Find the time to read things. There's a lot of things on the internet now. The knowledge is easily accessible. Just finding the time to access it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, how can uh, students get involved in research or innovation in this field now? Um, here at Clarkson or just in general? So you can um, look at all of the topics of research that are going on, so attend poster sessions and see if any topic interests you, then reach out to the professor doing that research. And you can do research during summertime or during semester research for credits. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And explore different research areas. This is a good time to find out what topic really interests you the most. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, is there anything else you would like to say, comments, plugs, just in general you'd like to say before we wrap things up? Chemical engineering and materials engineering are exciting fields to be in, so do consider these for your career choices. As a chemi myself, I can recommend. Even something as like culturally relevant as sports. You know, I'm, I'm a hockey fan personally. I look at you can look at the evolution of like the materials that st- the hockey sticks are made out of, and that we make the boards out of, and uh, and and you know goalie equipment and all of that, and um, just seeing those technological advances impact uh, society and culture in that way is really cool. So, well, I believe that is everything. Um, thank you so very very much for coming in and talking with us today, and just thank you again for coming in. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Tyler. Yeah, it was a pleasure. It was nice Thanks. talking to you. Yeah.